Hello and welcome to BachCast. This is episode 31, and I'm your host, John Hendren. In this episode, we're going to take a look at one of Bach's sonatas for the violin and keyboard. In this case, we've been looking at all six of them, and this is the fifth one in the series, the one in F minor. And it's one, I think, where Bach is going to continue to try to innovate a bit, try some new things out in this idea of having a piece with equal partners between a keyboard and a melody instrument, this case being the violin. Now in this sonata in F minor, I'm going to start this episode by giving you a taste of the themes Bach uses in each of the four movements. As with all of the others before it, we have four movements, slow, fast, slow, fast. In the examples that follow, I'm going to be borrowing these from the recording by Maggie Cole, harpsichord, and Catherine McIntosh on the violin. This release came out in 1997 on the Shandos Chacon label. So I know those went by very quickly, but it gave you a taste of what this sonata contains. Um, I really do think there are some very interesting things in this one, uh, and I want to point some of those out to you as you explore this on your own. Uh, hopefully I'll give you some taste of what's out there in terms of what's in my collection, what, I've, what I kind of like, what I would listen for. In the first movement, Bach kind of looks backwards, I think, and says... Um, Again, he's kind of playing with this dynamic of balance between two different instruments. And it starts out in what we might think is a very traditional way to approach a keyboard with a melody instrument, and that's to start out on the keyboard. So this piece starts out slowly in the keyboard in a minor key, and just like he did in the very first sonata, he borrows the same technique and has the violin sort of what I call sneak in to the picture. Now, I'm going to play an excerpt from the first sonata. The first sonata was in the key of B minor, and this performance is of uh, Mr. Carbagnola 
and Mr. Marcon from their 2002 release on the Sony label. Uh, I featured this in previous podcasts just to give you an idea of the opening of the very first sonata and how Bach sort of sneaks in the violin with a very long note. It also is a great juxtaposition of what the keyboard can do and what the violin can do and giving each instrument their due. Um, when you think about what Bach is likely going to do in this sonata, which, hint, hint, he will do it, is to have a theme in the right hand of the harpsichord or the keyboard and have the same melody go back and forth into the violin, trading that back in counterpoint. Uh, basically, there's nothing specific about the instruments to that because they're going to be faster notes and they're going to be traded back and forth and your ear's going to hear that going back and forth. In this case, however, when he starts it, he's saying, hey, the harpsichord's good at moving notes because there's short, you know, a sharp attack and then very, uh, there's not much left to the note after time. And here's the violin, which of course is very good at doing long sustained notes. So again, the opening of the first sonata, and then what you'll hear next is the opening to this fifth sonata. And both of these performances, Giuliano Carbignola. So in our first example, the keyboard part has its own independent little thing it's doing with a little repeated da 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 little repeated motif in the right hand. And when the violin comes in, Bach does something interesting. It is as if it doesn't belong. It's as if the the keyboard part is its own independent thing, 
And the violin coming on top of that has nothing to do with the keyboard part. When I say nothing to do, I don't mean that they're, you know, they're in different keys and they just don't mix. They mix perfectly, but the keyboard part doesn't respond in any way to the, the violin part. It basically is extra stuff on top. And if you were to eliminate the violin part that we heard altogether, you'd still have a very um, understandable musical idea in the keyboard part, and we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't even suspect perhaps that something belonged on top of that. What Bach does in the treatment in this sonata that's different is that when the violin comes in, the keyboard part seems to respond. Uh, the melodic idea that starts in the right hand basically goes away for a little bit, lets the violin speak, and then when the violin uh, takes a breath, if you will, the right hand comes in. And so it's not so much of a competition of two ideas going on at once, it's a little trade-off, but having one, one melody at a time, basically. So it's a different type of treatment, which I think is important to notice that Bach, even though he's taken the same idea, to start off with the keyboard, have, a, have the violin come in, he's treating that differently here. He's not simply uh, rehashing the same idea. And I will say that if you look at other composers, I'm not going to name any names, however, there are composers that have written, you know, collections, let's say, of violin sonatas, and they will follow some very similar formulas, different musical ideas for certain, but the, the idea that you had a construction that worked, let's keep repeating that construction. And that has led people to say, well, you know, the quality isn't as high. And here we have Bach, who only gave us six of these. Um, and he is not content just rehashing the same formula. And so while there are similarities there, he's taken this off into a new direction. Um, this is also interesting because that little beginning thing repeats and that leads us to a question, uh, at least for the performers, what do we do on the repeat? Do we do something differently because it's repeated, that we've already heard that idea? And I've, I've mentioned in other podcasts um, that there is this Baroque um, thing that you repeat things, right? You have repeated uh, uh, sections of music. And a lot of that really comes from dance forms. And in a dance form, you would have sections of music that would repeat. And the performance practice involved with that, it was to, number one, you could improvise over time. And two, nobody wanted to hear the same thing. And so as you're repeating it, the natural thing is, well, how can I change it, make it different? And the technique that we have in the, in the high Baroque that we're talking about now, near the end of the era, would be to add ornamentation and to perhaps... Um, add something to the written page. So in that performance, I heard some additional uh, things added there. It was subtle, at least it was subtle from the violin part, it was more dynamic. Um, and Andrea Marcon added a few little ornaments in the harpsichord part, which I thought was nice. Um, but this next version we're going to listen to, uh, I will tell you who it is second. First, we'll listen to the opening again. And I'd just like you to compare uh, how they handle that. We're going to be listening to the two opening statements, if you will, from the first movement, BWV 1018. 
So immediately, I think it probably was apparent that the harpsichordist was um, a little more fancifully minded, perhaps. Um, there were, was little ornamentation going on everywhere. And I don't know, again, uh, it did not really play into my what I set you up with to say, oh, maybe they'll add something the second time around. They started just peppering this piece with ornamentation, which um, I'm a fan of. And you you might guess who this is if you've been listening to this series. That was Tan Koopman on the harpsichord and Monica Huggett on the violin. And although Huggett did not go off like, uh, you know, crazy with her restatement, she does change things. She does add a little uh, extra, if you will, in the second statement. And so she, you know, there is this dynamic between players. When one starts doing something, why would not the other one do it? And there's this whole idea of, of back and forth uh, uh, echo response type thing that, that can happen with musicians. Um, so there is something there, but now let's listen to one other example, just the opening. Again, I'm interested in how they're treating restatement of this. And it's kind of a, a, a neat, I, I think it's a neat theme and the way it comes together is kind of nice too. And the one thing that I've mentioned in an earlier episode is the idea of balance. And in hearing three examples back to back, you're going to um, you're going to experience some of those differences as well. And uh, the thing that I think really stands out as superlative, if I was going to point out something I think is particularly well done in a performance like this, uh, especially with the way Bach has written this, uh, he does not write, for instance, triple piano crescendo for that note, the first note we hear in the violin. That is th that type of notation uh, in music didn't come until later um, in the classical period. Uh, Bach is a composer who did use dynamic markings, but they were very far and few between. They're very unusual to see him marking a dynamic or uh, the, the idea of a change of a dynamic over time was typically not written out because it was part of the performance practice. Um, and of course, we have performers who follow some of those suggestions very strictly. We have others that kind of play loose with them. And of course, the idea is that the only reason that we know of any of these, because we don't have recordings, is because theorists would write about them and they would write about performance practice. And typically they were in like manuals on how to play the violin. And so you might have someone who says, well, when you have a big long note, you should crescendo de crescendo. It should have a natural swell to it. Uh, but that doesn't mean that every musician did that in every part of the world at every point in the history of music. And so we kind of pick and choose. And we also have to use our intelligence and our own inventiveness on how to do that. And that is one of the benefits in collecting multiple versions of some pieces is that you might have three really good, strong recordings and they don't sound anything alike because the performers are kind of putting forth some of their own uh, ideas in this music. And in Bach, there's certainly room for that. In all Baroque music, there's room for that because specifics just wasn't, weren't a part of the, the practice. Um, and that's my opinion. But And some, of course, musicians share that would share that opinion. Others would, would use it with restraint, I think, and say, well, within certain bounds. And uh, I'm not disagreeing with that. However, I'm not at the expert level to tell you exactly 
what the latest research says about performance and because I think it is very mixed up and there's lots of competing opinions. And you're going to have that when you talk about history, right? So this is one last opening of the first movement of this sonata, just again hearing how they react to a repeat. So I gave you a very long extended clip there. I hope you got to hear what I'm talking about repeats because if you were to cheat and look at the score, you would see that this isn't a real repeat, but that first, that first phrase of the violin comes in a second time. And of course, if you're paying attention to the keyboard part, it keeps kind of, the, key, the same theme keeps repeating and then he changes key into the major mode there. And it's just sort of this repetition of ideas just slowly morphing. But there are no actual, you know, double dots in the score to say you're repeating something. This is not a dance movement uh, where we have, you know, back-to-back -back an A and a B that both get repeated. And so most of these performers aren't taking the bait, if you will, and saying, oh, I'm, I, I have free reign to do something the second time around. I play that because it's really a continuation. Bach is writing this stuff out. And we see it, what kind of plan he's putting together there by stretching this content over and over again to turn it into something quite beautiful. Um, this last performance was Reinhard Goebel and uh, Hank Bowman, uh, respectively violin and harpsichord. And by giving you a little extended taste of that one, I hoped 
that you would hear a few other things about the performance. Number one, Gerbil uh, really does take advantage of adding some ornaments in the violin part. The harpsichord part is pretty straight on what's the score, what, the, what was on the score. Not a lot of playing around there. Um, and then we look at the idea of ornamentation, and I think some of them are easy for us to hear when you come into cadence and you do a little trill or you do a a, a turn. Those are easy to hear because they're they're finger based. Uh, the other one that's finger based that you may not as well appreciate is the vibrato, and so. I mentioned earlier about changing volume on long notes, but one ornament in Baroque music is the use of vibrato, which is not changing fingers, but vibrating the finger, if you will, back and forth on a string. Uh, we hear Gerbil doing that on some of the longer notes, and I will tell you that uh, it's the one aspect of his performance that I really uh, don't care for, uh, because I think the vibrato is a little too fast. And i that's my opinion, of course. But there, there are some violinists in more recent times that have taken vibrato at a slower uh, speed, a velocity. Um, which, to me, you don't get as much of it there. It's a little more difficult to hear. But I really like the effect. And just for the general speed of this uh, particular movement, I would think of a slightly slower vibration there with the finger would have been uh, more to my liking, but that's my personal preference. And we'll see what uh, you can, of course, make a judgment for yourself whether you like that or not. Uh, and if you need to, go back a little bit and see if you can hear it again because it's it's not overt. It's not like we're listening to you know Isaac Stern perform this. It is uh, still a Baroque aesthetic, but there is a little bit of vibrato there on the longer notes that is very perceivable. So that's the first movement. Bach playing with a minimal bit of musical material and stretching it and repeating it at, at different ways, changing the mode for us and kind of setting us up for something that's a little uh, kind of cool, little feisty thing that's coming up. Um, the second movement is is cool because Bach digs in with his old friend counterpoint and really starts playing as you might expect between right hand and violin. So let's continue with Reinhard Goebel and listen to the second movement uh, opening of this sonata and we'll compare it with uh, another example and uh, we'll see which, which you prefer.
So what do you think? Comparison of the two. So the second one is Pablo Valetti uh, with Celine Frisch. This is on the Alpha label. Uh, their release came out, checking, 2003. Um, one of the things that was very crystalline clear for me in the uh, the first example of the second movement was the entrance of the harpsichord with the theme. You notice what Bach has done. Uh, both performers are ornamenting the entrance of those notes in the harpsichord. I'm not going to try to sing the ornament. Um, in the violin, it's kind of plain. The one thing that uh, Mr. Valetti does when he enters with the theme, uh, which is the violin is the first to present it, uh, is, to, is to even ornament that, kind of playing off the fact that, yes, there's going to be ornaments coming up. But he doesn't overdo it. And the performance, um, the, the sound of the violin, the whole sound of the recording is a little richer, a little darker, perhaps, than the Gerbil uh, recording. That's my uh, gripe number two with Goebbels' uh, recording made in the early 80s is, is it just sounds a little thin. Um, it doesn't affect the harpsichord as poorly as the violin sound, but um, in terms of balance, there is a huge difference between these two recordings, and I'm much going to prefer uh, biased towards the Goebbels recording because I just feel in this one that the balance between the violin and harpsichord with the Valetti uh, Frisch release is too violin heavy. And so when you're playing with counterpoint, uh, it's really difficult, I think, at least for me, to pick out the theme in the harpsichord just because of the balance issue. Uh, I think it's a lot easier for us to hear that, that interplay. We also know that Bach is shooting on all cylinders here because he's not just content to put the theme between two voices, he actually takes the theme into the to the left hand of the harpsichord as well. This is a full-on fugal treatment, and um, he does do some interplay between the right hand and the violin uh, that just happened before I zoomed out, uh, not zoomed out, um, faded out, that you probably picked up on, which is very easy for us to hear. It's like, but that theme that comes in, um, goes to all three voices, which is um, quite an accomplishment to fit all that together. So that is the second movement, this kind of interesting theme. I also wanted you to pay attention to the range of the violin. The violin is a very interesting instrument. Uh, all string instruments are interesting to me, but if you are not familiar with how they overlap in their ranges. Uh, the violin, uh, if you were to look at a keyboard, its lowest possible note is a G below middle C. And it is, uh, well, there's some issues with playing that low. It's it's a little bit of a stretch to play. Your your fingers are having to stretch over to that, that string, that G string on the left hand most side of the instrument. And uh, typically when violinists are grabbing a note or two or playing down there. Uh, if you notice their left hand, they're, they're, and especially if they're moving up that string, uh, it can look a little daring because they're, they're stretching over all the other three strings to get there. Uh, it is also the lowest part of the instrument, and I'll just say that some violins really sound great in that low register, others don't. And that is always a, an issue, I think, when you're choosing an instrument. How does it sound across its entire range? 
uh, and certain violins will have characteristics that will have a may have a strong range and you have to compensate as the player when you play in areas that aren't as strong. I point this out because Bach um, really hasn't been exploiting the lower part of the instrument that I've noticed it's like stuck out to me until we get to this sonata. And I didn't point it out earlier when we listened to the first movement, but Bach, when, when he's giving those longer notes to the violin, he actually dips into notes that have to be played on that first string. Um, we're going to hear it again in the fourth movement, but I just want to point that out. Uh, in this movement in particular, there are some, there's some lowness, if you will. There's some, uh, when you're hearing the theme in the left hand, for instance, in the second movement, it's in the lower register, and it's it's I think it's rather kind of interesting that Bach chose to go there. Um, not all harpsichords are going to speak the same there, but um, that is one of the issues that you're going to have in choosing an instrument, but also uh, being sympathetic to that when you're recording. Um, part of part of and I I pick a lot on the recorded quality of recordings, probably more so than I ever see written in other reviews. It's something to me, and I don't mean to pick on the folks whose job it is to, to actually do this because there are a lot of assumptions on your part or my part as we listen that, oh, that didn't come out clear. It must be the guy who recorded its fault. Um, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, you may just have an instrument that doesn't speak well, and that's the result. Uh, but there are challenges. Um, definitely... Uh, if you've tried record doing anything with a microphone before, um, there are so many variables at how to pick stuff up and different opinions and different theories about how to best represent instruments. And in this case, we're talking about extreme chamber music, two players. And do you want to, you know, capture the sound as it would be in a concert hall where we might actually hear this today, or would it be more appropriate to? play this in a chamber setting and have a drier sound uh, and then how close would you be to the instrument so those always those decisions I don't know if if it's my fault as uh, a, as a fan of this music but um, that aspect of the recording always sticks out to me as well and sometimes I just love recordings or the uh, because it's been captured in a way that just makes sense to me that aesthetically uh, makes sense. I, I don't really get deep into the theory, and I can certainly appreciate um, having this music performed in different settings and what that might sound like. The ultimate for me, if you will, would be to go back to a concept that was first brought about by Glenn Gould, the Canadian pianist. Um, he mused that at some point in our future, we would have the choice in recordings to to basically twist the knobs and to make choices about how we wanted to hear the music, whether we could speed it up or slow it down, or we could change the tonal balance. And he was referencing the bass and treble knobs on stereos at the time, and said this is likely just the beginning. If you think about it, we could be getting our music in a format where we could be applying our own digital effects, and we could have all the multiple tracks that a, a recording engineer uses and tweak things ourselves if we want to customize not the performance per se but the way in which it's been recorded and to uh, of course if you use multiple uh, microphone pickups you could do some of that stuff and i'm rambling off about that but i i want you to pay attention when you listen to recordings about some of these things because i think they're they're interesting and they um 
They may point you in a direction to say, hey, I really like the quality that this particular label typically does uh, when they're doing the recordings. Um, you may also start to pay attention, for instance, if you get the booklet or the digital booklet for a recording, is to see where they recorded it. Um, and those are often interesting questions to, as, as well. Why did you choose this particular space? Um, I'm seeing a lot of stuff now recorded in churches. Churches typically are available a lot, uh, except obviously probably on Sundays. But they are a historically accurate place to perform a lot of Baroque music because a lot of the music that survives was written for a church uh, atmosphere. Um, but the church also presents problems. Um, you would not necessarily pick a large church with a lot of reverb in it for a chamber piece like this, wherein there may be a, an alcove or something that it might be more appropriate. So you get you get you still get reverb, but if you were actually there, you'd have that more up-close feeling to it. In all the recordings I'm sharing with you, they are all... I wouldn't say they're all the same, definitely not, but they don't go to extremes. It's not like one of them was recorded in a cathedral and the other one was recorded in somebody's living room with carpet. Um, we don't see extremes in the recordings I've been sharing with you, but nevertheless, there are those dynamics with how the microphones, and I, I lament sometimes that you can get a really good performance and it's lackluster because of some aspect of how it was recorded or the distance or the, whatever the case may be. There is a little clip that will come up in the uh, edition that I've already recorded of the sixth and final sonata. Uh, I don't share it in the recording, but I'll give you the hint or the preview now that uh, one of the recordings was done uh, sort of in a live situation. It was recorded using a museum instrument, a historical, uh, I believe a Stradivarius, um, that was owned, I believe it's the Met Museum in New York, and then it was recorded there, and there was a company hired to come capture the performance using the museum's historical instruments. And boy, the, the, the quality of that just doesn't compare to what we're getting out of uh, studio recordings or what I call pseudo-studio recordings uh, maybe be a natural space to record in, but they've brought you know considerable amount of equipment. So, that aside, let's look at the third movement. It's marked Adagio. Let's go ahead and continue with Pablo Valetti and Celine Frisch from their 2003 recording on Alpha. So what is Bach doing here? Very different, isn't it? Exploiting the unique quality of the violin to play chords. Uh, this is double stopping, two, two strings at a time. And it's a very different treatment than what we've heard thus far. We get this repeated kind of almost a sobbing type figure in the violin being forced to play multiple uh, notes at a time and the harpsichord's sort of doing this really cool thing that lends itself to me to be to a harpsichord. Now, I've been trying to be very exact in calling this a keyboard and violin sonata um, because we have lots of keyboards available that we could perform here. 
the likelihood is that Bach would have performed this on a harpsichord, and so um, this just this kind of cascading, this do 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 do, this downward stuff going on, is just kind of a lends itself to me to a harpsichord. I don't know why it makes me think of something that's sparkling, if you will, uh, something that's shimmering, just because of the the very metallic uh, flavor that a harpsichord has, and that that figure just works very well. I will say, I don't like this performance at all for this particular movement. Uh, I think it's too fast, and I think we're really missing the the drama that's there in this repeated figure in the violin. It just feels too fast, and um, it's as if the performers don't know what to say with it. And that might be insulting, I don't know if insulting, but that's that would be my interpretation. So we're going to listen to another one, and I'll hopefully point out where I think it's done a little better. So, fast, yes. Um, if I compare the, the track speeds, that was 241, 2 minutes and 41 seconds for this particular version, which is Stefano Montanari and Christophe Rousset, their 2006 release. Um, and if I go back to the Valletti uh, 258, and I said, well, I didn't like the first one, it sounded too fast. It sounded like it was being rushed through. There is a very different treatment here in the violin part that, to me, kind of saves the speed. And I could take it slower. They could, you know, they could go over three minutes, and I think I might even be happier. But it is uh, Montanari's treatment of that violin line. He doesn't, he doesn't give the full value, length value for all those notes. Like, da 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 ya, da da da. To me, it makes it sound uh, kind of organic, uh, human, if you will. I almost said they're like sobbings, right? And he turns them into something like, like, yeah, da, da, da. Um, he doesn't play them all so short. He doesn't play them all so precise. To me, it gives a very organic um, human quality to it that to me just really, really works. Um, Reinhard Gerbel takes even faster than this, and um, it's an interpretation. I don't hate it, but this is the type of a type of approach that I, I've really liked in comparing recordings. I think this just makes sense to me. It gives some um, gives something unique to it. The harpsichord again, unique sound, metallic. It kind of needs to be regular. It's, the, it's sort of the music box, if you will. And then on top of this is this human, human piece to it.
The next movement, the last movement, is uh, is my favorite, and uh, to me, it is a real, as we may say, a tour de force. Bach is. Um, I'm actually going to use a word I probably would never think about associating with Bach, but to me, uh, this last movement is has what I call the badass theme to it. Um, the violin has this theme that just goes down to the the lower stretches of its range. As I mentioned in the earlier movement, Bach is playing here with different approaches to these instruments and exploiting the lower range of the violin here uh, is one of the things that he employs. So without further ado, let's continue because I do like the version by Stefano Montanari and Christophe Rousset in Bach's final movement of BWV 1018. That was the theme. So Bach has got this very angular, almost angry, what I call badass theme. Now you could play it politely, and some of the performances do that. To me, I would just go out on this because it's and it's, it's a sort of rising figure, right? And as the violin is going up, kind of at a step-by-step, step, relatively slow way, the harpsichord's going down, 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 down. There's this juxtaposition of up and down and up and down at the same time, which really just makes really cool music. Um, it's, it's treated contrapuntally. The theme will transfer over to the harpsichord it's just a really strong line for the violin. And I I, I think you're, if you're looking for like the double forte, you know, the you know, the, the the statement or direction from the composer to say play with fire or something like that, you're not gonna see it. To me, you just have to kind of get into the theme and and feel it. And to me, I don't happen to own one that where I think they take it to the limit. Uh, I, I will still be on the outlook for another version of this that really plays up the badass nature that I hear in this theme. Uh, and again, I don't think Bach has written a lot of badass music, but if, if there was one theme that he did, it was, it's this. Maybe a couple of the organ works, he's got some uh, fiery stuff as well. But to me, this is really kind of uh, kind of cool, and it comes out of nowhere, and you have this this sort of... Again, almost a sobbing, crying theme, if you will, uh, in the third movement, where the violin really isn't the isn't the show. It's kind of in the background, while the while the harpsichord, the keyboard, takes over the main theme ideas. 
And then we're here where it's just bump, 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 bump. Uh, just comes out of nowhere with this very strong theme with breaks in it, which is very easy to hear, of course, because you've got all the, the moving stuff happening in the keyboard. So that uh, performance was, again, Stefano Montanari. Uh, of the versions I have, I really like his just because he sounds the most confident. Um, and there are a few other violinists that I could think of in the back of my head who I know can play with a lot of vigor, who I would invite uh, an audition of their recordings. Um, one thing I will note, I've in this version of the uh, episode, I've been playing some of the examples by Monica Huggett. That is a release that I have unfortunately cannot find and reissue. I have found, however, that Tan Koopman has re-recorded the sonatas for violin and harpsichord with Catherine Manson. Um, and so if you're interested in the Tan Koopman side of the uh, equation, he's done a more recent recording with another violinist. And I've sampled that. I've not decided to purchase it yet, but I've sampled it. I found it available online. So, speaking of which, Tan Kutman, Monica Huggett, let's listen to their rendition of this final movement. And again, don't think they really exploit the badass properties of this theme to my liking, but nevertheless, um, I think they do it some justice. So I want to thank you listeners for listening to this edition, this episode of BachCast, featuring Bach's fifth sonata for violin and keyboard. We've heard a number of examples here to illustrate what I think are some of the interesting aspects of this particular sonata. And most importantly there is how Bach is exploiting the roles of the two instruments. He continues to play with those throughout all the sonatas and I think in this one he's really reaching out to do some new and interesting things. Uh, one of which is to give some different types of roles to the instrument that we have not heard before. Um, and one of the performances that I really think exploits that is in the third movement. Uh, that performance is Stefano Montanari with Christophe Rousset on the keyboard. And the other very interesting Thing is how Bach reuses an idea from his first sonata in the first movement, but then treats it differently and treats the relationship of those instruments differently. He goes all out with counterpoint in the second movement by putting the theme in all three voices, if you will, left hand, right hand of the keyboard in addition to the violin. And then in this last movement, he uh, we actually don't get to it specifically, but he goes to the lower range of the violin, uh, which is just dramatic because we typically don't hear when it goes down that deeply and he's juxtapositioning the direction of the lines where one is going up the other going down and presents what I think is a very interesting edgy theme uh, to exploit between the two instruments in this last movement. So there we have it. There's one left. Uh, the sixth sonata in the key of G which is a bear. It's an interesting, interesting sonata because it's uh, we've got multiple versions of multiple movements. 
And that episode will be coming up soon. So thank you for listening. My name is John Hendren, host of BachCast, and you can learn more about this podcast by going to my website, bieberfan.org. That's B-I-B-E-R-F-A-N dot O-R-G.